0: right in Kentucky, I assume Yes, we are In five, four, three, two. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast Season 5, Episode 11 Hod Times I'm Josh I'm Luke I'm John And this week we have a returning guest The Mountain That Podcasts The original Viking Luchador The incomparable host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast Mr. El Goro Greetings, I'm the sir. the only
1: host, so you really can't compare me with anybody, can you?
0: That, well, there you go.
1: <laughs> you stand high on that mountain. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I stand by what I said. He
1: laughs, he laughs at you. <laughs>, laughs from his mountain.
0: <laughs> That's right. Uh, when last we met, it was about a year ago uh, on yeah. Skull, Skull Island.
1: Yeah, it was, where we talked about King Kong. And I still think it's funny that I ended up doing King Kong on my show almost a year to the week when I did it on your show. And it was totally unplanned.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I still haven't seen the new Kong. Have you guys? I have not. Yeah, John, have nope.
2: you seen Skull Island? No. No, I've been dadding it up. Yeah, no that's, no that's, movie time for Jonathan. That's
0: true. Just coffee nope. and taking care of the offspring, right? <laughs> <laughs> Diaper tea. Diaper tea.
1: <laughs>
3: what's, uh, what's your verdict, Goro?
1: I really enjoyed it. It was a pretty well-put-together creature feature. The only problem it ran into was uh, managing the large cast, but they were all enjoyable in their own parts, just weren't fully as fleshed out as I perhaps would have hoped. But other than that, it was a lot of fun, and it really helps gives me hope for where they're going with this larger King Kong universe, because I wasn't a huge fan of the American King Kong film that came out a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. But they seem to have done a course correction. It's much less... um, People looking at debris and seeing kind of the outlines of monsters fighting between uh, on the other side of it. It's very much fo- focused on the creature feature stuff, and I'm very excited to see where it goes. Uh, so
0: it seems as though it's going toward a remade King Kong versus Godzilla, if I understand correctly.
1: At some point, I believe the, the next one they're going to do is going to be dealing with Um, King Ghidorah, and eventually leading towards a big monster throwdown. Whether it's going to be just Godzilla and King Kong in the fourth film, I think they're planning, or third or fourth, because it's going to keep going. But um, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be an interesting little mashup.
0: And ambitious.
1: Very ambitious, very ambitious. But I'm always going to be a fan of giant kaiju action, so... Anything that they can bring to me, especially if they can maintain the tone and fun of Skull Island, I'm on board.
0: Cool. Well, I'm going to have to add that to my queue at some point.
1: Definitely.
0: All right. So we've got a movie to talk about tonight that's not quite to the scale of Kong Skull Island, although there is a monster in the film, I would argue.
1: There is. There is. Uh,
0: but before we get to that, gentlemen, what are you drinking?
2: I've got a Kugel Kolsch
0: beer with me tonight. Nice. Nice. cool canoe paddler. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Tasty. Goro, do you have a, a libation?
1: I do, but it's super lame because I just came back from the gym and I'm tired, so I'm just drinking water.
0: That is not lame. That <laughs> is, you You have to maintain proper hydration to keep the machinery going so that later you can enjoy a beverage.
1: So they that say, but I, I, I miss the day when I drink like 10 beers a night. <laughs> that, that, those were good times.
3: <laughs> uh, Luke? I have uh banknote blended Scotch whiskey. This is uh a step down the uh the, the cheap ass Scotch Road that I keep keep while I'm walking down. Uh and it's good stuff. So <laughs>
0: cheap ass scotch road. So
3: that's that's what I got going. <laughs> what about you, Josh? Uh
0: I've got some local brew. This is West Sixth brewing Belgian style blonde, which is tasty and delicious. Mmm. Mmm. And <laughs> so that's our that's our drink roll call for the night. <laughs>
3: um
0: Let's talk about one thing. One.
4: Thing. There
0: you go. <laughs> El Goro sir.
1: All right. Well, uh, I was uh, kind of searching for one thing on this one, and uh, as you rightly pointed out, I can talk about this. Recently, over the last weekend, I visited my girlfriend out in San Francisco. Whenever I'm in that beautiful, beautiful city, I like to spend my time in a darkened room at the Alamo Draft House. The, without a doubt, the best theater chain that has ever, or probably will ever exist. If you, any of your listeners are unfamiliar with the Alamo Draft House. It only has a couple locations throughout the United States. Uh, they have one in L.A., Denver, uh, Texas, um, Nebraska. I found out, and San Francisco. They're kind of they're they're not a very widely spread theater chain because they have very very strict standards. But the biggest thing about the Alamo is the entire theatrical experience when you arrive at the theater you know you're sitting down you have a paired seats with a table in front you can order food you can order beer and it's just this great little experience and it's you can tell it's made by movie fans they have very strict no talking no cell phone uses policies and they will kick you out for violating them and they program films that is a combination of mainstream fare, so you could easily see you know, Baywatch or Pirates of the Caribbean, those were the new releases onto there, but you can also see the indie, or indie stuff that you don't always have the greatest amount of access to. For example, the film that we saw together was the 2016 Nacho Vigalando film, Colossal, speaking of giant kaiju
4: stuff. <laughs>
1: (laughs) It was a film I very, very much enjoyed and the, and the draft house was just the greatest experience for it. And outside of those little indie releases, they frequently will do a lot of specialized throwback screenings. One of the big things they do at the San Francisco location, and perhaps some other ones, is their weird Wednesdays. Well, they'll just program movies that seem tailor-made for me. A lot of times, whenever they do these retrospectives, they'll pair it up with specific drink orders or food orders. They'll offer vinyl pins. This particular location in the new Mission District of San Francisco has a huge, extensive video rental library, which was always great to kind of thumb through And, yeah, it is basically a movie chain or movie theater chain designed for and tailored to film geeks. So I absolutely love it.
3: That's awesome. And so, John, you've been to an Alamo Drafthouse in Nebraska, right?
2: Yeah, we've got one here in Omaha, and he's exactly right. It's awesome to go in. Did they – the one you go to, do they have like the little snippets beforehand where – you're watching a kaiju movie, so I assume they've got like Gamera – Shorts like Gamera fighting turtles and stuff on on screen here. They they put together little snippets of like we went and saw Deadpool. So they had Deadpool dancing with Spider-Man and all (laughs) kinds of weird YouTube features like that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they they really did. Uh, they, they had a couple of those onto there. Some of them were a bit strange, like yes. <laughs> the um, the advertisement for a Korean workout uh, device, which is essentially supposed to mimic riding a horse, but ah. really just looks very very sexual. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> and it's 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 all stuff that makes zero sense until you see the film and then you realize the weird little ways that they managed to connect it in. Cool. Like they, they threw in a couple of those, um, thug life memes, you know, where somebody will do something and they'll slow it down, play rap. And then the, the sunglasses will drop. <laughs> and you know, it's like, Oh, that's funny. Until you watch the film and realize that's actually referencing something that happens in the film. Ah, uh,
3: cool. So yeah. I have, so, so at the, uh, at the Alamo draft house, like a question that I have, cause I I really, really want to go to one of these places when I get the chance and I'm in the right city. How like how crowded is it? Like is the experience still just like like, you know, enjoyable because everybody's there for the movie and you don't have to deal with a lot of the bullshit that is a put off now? Like is it is it still like it's it's a it's a good experience all through and through, right?
1: Yeah, to me, it's a good, it's a great experience. The actual theater rooms that I've been into, and you know, I've only been a handful of times, so I can't speak to every screening room they have. They're much smaller than your traditional uh, multiplex. So you're going to want to try to purchase your tickets ahead of time online. So you can have your designated assigned seating. And they're very particular about that as well. But the the placements of the seats the, in this case they had I think there was four different tiers so you never you never will have your view of the screen obscured by the person in front of you cool and it's it's just this it's a very very specialized movie experience because it's also a combination dining and drinking experience that they manage to seamlessly work in and they'll deliver your food and your drink without ever I- interrupting the flow of the film it's just perfect for me and it really it really does go a long way to making the movies feel special again. You know that you're there with people that just get it. There's a lot of joking before the movie starts, uh, depending on what you're going to see. But when the movie starts, everybody is quiet. Everybody is respectful to the experience of being in the cinema. And I absolutely
2: love it. Nice. Awesome.
0: Yeah, we have a movie tavern here in Lexington that uh, does pretty well with the, you know, the dining and, and cinema experience. Um, but they don't really show the cool, you know, genre films and, and do the, the weird Wednesday type of thing that you described. Um, so it would be really cool to visit one of those places, I think.
1: Yeah, it's one of my dreams uh, we you constantly talk about, you know, if you won the lottery, the, the what I would do if I won the lottery, I would open up an Alamo. <laughs> but they ha- they have very strict rules about their franchise. I once read their franchise rules and it, they must be this big, they must be this uh, located next to a metropolitan center. It gets very very specific because they want to try to maintain the quality associated with the Alamo Draft House
2: brand.
3: Cool. So, John, when you've gone, has it been like a purchase your tickets ahead of time, that kind of thing?
2: Oh, yeah. You go online and you get what you want. Uh, you pick your seats out and you build rewards that way if you're oh, an okay. Alamo Victory member. Uh, and you go there and it's the theaters are smaller. He's right. But the seats are kind of spacious and yeah. comfy feeling. And I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but in most of them, most showings, children. Under a certain age you're not allowed, which sounds like like heresy to a lot of people at a movie theater, but it does add something to the experience, I <laughs> <Yeah>. think.
3: <laughs>
1: well add to the fact they're selling alcohol, they probably had to ban children right. from right. attending. Right.
3: Yeah, maybe. So so that's also I mean, this is probably like not just the bubble of like Lexington, Kentucky, but the world over, or at least the United States over, is probably becoming more of the whole buy your buy your seats in advance, right? Like that's becoming a thing that we're seeing at least with a, a number of our theaters here in town that you can go to. Otherwise, what Mm -hmm. do you guys feel about that? I, (laughs) I, I I don't want to derail us too much, but I, we're talking about this and I think it's a cool, a cool topic. And yeah,
2: I, I will say that you have the option at the Alamo to buy when you get there. Uh, you walk up to the counter and you pick out your seats on the screen rather than do it online. Right. But you get the rewards and stuff if you do it beforehand. Okay.
1: Yeah. And as for me, I mean, I've been making a concentrated effort to going to the theater more this year because I noticed that my the- theater experience or theater attendance had been dropping off a lot of years because, you know, there's there's a lot of hassles that with going into th- the theater. Not just getting out up out of your house, but also having to deal with other people, not being assured a great seat. Yeah. And... For me, the idea of buying online, particularly in theaters that allow you to buy an assigned seat, that just takes one of those variables out of it. I know when I walk into the theater, I'm going to have a seat and it's going to be where I would prefer to watch the movie from. So I'm a fan of that.
3: I'm I'm on board with that too, algoro Like we have a we have a cool old theater in downtown Lexington that you can go to, and it's it's a little bit cheaper, and you can see some of the cool like art house indie indie picks that that come through there. So it's mm-hmm. a great venue to just sort of show up on a on a weeknight or a, a weekend and catch a flick, easy enough. But I like the idea, of, man. If I'm going to your your run of the mill like movie theater, I like the idea now of being able to buy your ticket ahead of time and. Yeah and bypass some of that, some of that, some of that funny business. It it has
0: taken some of the spontaneity out of, you know, suddenly go, deciding, Hey, let's go catch a, a flick tonight. Um, and then getting there and realizing that all of the seats, except the front row uh, are taken. But I agree with you guys. I I'm on board with knowing where you're going to sit, knowing that, you know, with some, some planning, knowing that the seat that you're going to have is what you would want. Like there's, there's some cool uh, value added uh, uh, I don't know. It's, it adds some value to the cinema experience, I guess.
3: Yeah, I like the I like the ability of being able to avoid, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like like yes. bad moviegoers. <laughs>
1: exactly, yeah. and th- ultimately, that's one of the reasons I love the Alamo so much is that it is an environment that is specifically designed to get rid of bad movie goers. For the <laughs> longest time there was, well, they, they had a v- video that went viral for a while. It was their no cell phone policy v- um, warning before the video, which was an actual voicemail. Somebody had left them where she was yelling and cursing them out because they kicked her out of the theater because she was talking on her cell phone. And she was like, I'll never come back again. And it just ends with good. We don't want you here.
3: Nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome.
0: Um, that's a good one thing.
3: Hey, <laughs> There's a lot of mileage
2: on that one. Yeah, there. yeah we got there some go. good,
0: good talking out of that one. Uh, hey, John. Yes? Do you have something you'd like to share with the class?
2: Yeah, I do. Uh, I am I'm watching war movies this month during the month of May, and I wanted one that wasn't uh, focused on America, and I picked one called The Admiral, Roaring Currents. It's a Korean film, and it stars uh, Choi Min-sik, who is the – the guy that is an old boy and he portrays a very famous Korean naval commander called or named Yi Sun Sin, who is probably either the greatest or second greatest naval commander in the history of the world. And he helped to preserve Korea in a war against Japan. He led a series of naval battles, but the famous one that they portray in this movie, the Admiral Roaring Currents is the one where he, has 12 boats in his whole Navy and he stops a Japanese invasion fleet made up of pirates and like real Japanese Navy samurai type folks. And they have about 330 boats and he uses some of the Korean, uh, tidal flow, I guess, to his advantage and ultimately drives them away with only 12 boats. It's, it's really cool. I know that some people don't like dubbed or subtitled movies, but I was really into it. I thought it was a lot of fun. So if you're into maybe a war movie that's not focused on America, then check out The Admiral.
1: I've been meaning to check that out. I'm, I'm a big fan of Choi Min-sik, and that looked, looked to be a great film.
2: I read that it was the most popular. It's the most popular movie in the history of Korea. It surpassed Avatar. Wow. 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 Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I got to I had never heard of that before, so I've got to put that on my radar.
3: So is it, John, is it like a is it like a prolonged uh, like naval battle or is it uh, it's is it more the than beginning
2: that? part is about him trying to keep his naval people together, his Navy service people together, because they're all pretty much they've heard that 330 boats are coming and that they're all going to die and they're all trying to quit. And, you know, he's got to turn their fear into pride and into honor and galvanize them against the enemy and the beginning part's all about that and how he does it. And then the middle and end part is the pirates and everybody in Japan teaming up to kill this guy. Cause they all hate him cause he's humiliated them multiple times and it, it's them sort of sailing towards him and him preparing. And then the battle happens and it's, it's really cathartic. Josh, Josh, uh,
0: mine is a comic book that I read uh, over the last few weeks. Um, that I actually didn't think I was going to like all that much, and it is called Superman American Alien. And it was written by Max Landis, and the art uh, duties kind of varied across the different issues. There are seven issues in this Maxi series, and The overall series doesn't tell a complete tale, but rather each series or each uh, issue in the series is a vignette of uh, uh, Superman's life. Some some uh, point in time in Clark Kent's history. And, you know, the first issue is little boy Clark kind of coming to grips with the fact that he is different than all of his friends at school And saying, you know, why why don't I just beat up the bullies at school? You know, why don't I just throw the football as hard as I can? Why don't I take advantage of these skills that I have? And and, you know, Ma and Pa Kent kind of tempering him with their values. And it moves into, you know, uh, Clark moving to Metropolis, Clark getting a job at the Daily Planet the, these little vignettes and in each one, there's a different villain. And, uh, the one that I enjoyed the most, and I think it's number six is, uh, an issue that features Lobo. And it is a fantastic throwdown between Superman and Lobo, uh, written by Max Landis, who has a way with, uh, dialogue. And, uh, these guys more or less just cussing each other out and throwing down in Metropolis. It's, it's pretty great. Um, but I didn't think I was going to like this, um, and I don't really know why. And picked it up, tried it out, and ended up loving it. So if you guys want a refreshing Superman uh, comic, then I can't recommend um, Superman American Alien enough. It's it really is one of the best Superman things I've read probably since Oh All Star Superman way back you know ten years ago at this point.
3: Awesome. So is this relatively new?
0: Yeah, I think the issues were released. Uh, through the end of 2015 into 2016. Okay. And the trade paperback was dated 2016.
1: Nice. Definitely going to have to check that out.
0: Yeah, check it out. Uh, it It is a much different – Superman has a different feel in this, but I think it's because Max Landis you know, gives him a little bit more of an edge in terms of his dialogue. He's still the good guy, right? But he's not the pushover good guy. Right. And I, I don't know, there's, there's something about it that I, I really did dig.
1: You see, and that's the thing I always liked about Superman. it's one of the reasons that I, I, I reject a lot of people when they talk about Superman being a boring character because, to me, one of the most interesting things about Superman is him coming to terms with the moral quandaries of being Superman. You know, the the great I, – I, I keep coming back to this, but the great conflict in a Superman story is not can he beat somebody because right. he's Superman. Of course he can. It's can he beat somebody without compromising his morals. Mm-hmm. And while you know, under the hands of some writers, that can be – his morality can be, you know, a little bit boring, a little bit boy Scout. in the hands of a good writer. It can be very, very fascinating because essentially you're, what you're dealing with is somebody from the Midwest with the powers of a God. I um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh So there it is.
0: There it is. Uh, so check this out. I recommend it a lot. I think you'll, you'll like it quite a bit and it has elements, you know, if you like those, stories where Superman is facing a, a moral quandary. This has that. If you want uh, a throwdown with a supervillain, this has that. If you want, you know, uh, how will Clark deal with missing his date with Lois? Cause he's got to save a kitten from a tree. Um, This has that. So So is
3: there like a through line to the, to the story or is it really like pick up a, pick up an issue? You could,
0: yeah, you could pick up an issue. You could pick up issue three and, and not really miss anything Uh from issues one and two. Um, So they all stand alone largely. Yeah. So that's my thing. Luke, do you have a thing?
3: I do have a one thing. Uh, My one thing is the rock band mountain, I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm going to Queen. <laughs> uh, I picked up a uh, Nantucket Ride, which is their second album on on vinyl just the other day. And nice. so that that sort of filled out the the first four albums, which is really like the 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 four albums that Mountain put out.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And man, I've been listening to it a lot. Uh they're they're great. Uh I think they're one of the one of the underappreciated rock bands of the 70s. I yeah. mean, you know, they got the cowbell, they got the rock and roll boogie woogie, like <laughs> like they've got that, that bluesy rock thing going on, but man, they're heavy as shit. And, and really, they just, they rock really hard. I mean, uh, so the very first album of, of the mountain band, it's like mountain climbing, right? right. And, and so the first track is Mississippi Queen, which everybody knows that song, and it just, it just rips along, right? But beyond that, that whole album is great. The second album... Uh, Nantucket Sleigh Ride is, is pretty, is pretty boss too. It's, it's just, you know, the, the album art for those couple, from those couple releases is pretty great. The third album that they have is called Flowers from Evil. And it's weird because it's one of those, one of those albums that came out that, uh, you know, one side is like studio work and then the other side is live stuff. And I don't think it's quite as strong as Nantucket Slayer Ride, but then their fourth album, which I think came out after they, they broke up, but it's called like uh, uh, Mountain Live The Road Goes Ever On. And so it's like a little little bit of Lord of the Rings there, or, or The Hobbit, like you know, it's a little bit Tolkien esque, right? And even like the the cover for that final uh, uh, album is is just killer. It's I think that was the first thing that I picked up from theirs. Just basically, like I knew Mountain, but you know that album specifically just had a great presentation. And it's only like four tracks, but man, it's it's killer. So if you were going to get into this band, I really do think that that fourth live album would be a great way to just delve into it but you really can't go wrong with any one of their albums uh and they're fun stuff i I like it a lot yeah they also they also have a really big guy that plays that plays bass and piano uh and i i dig that uh he he's just a, a clear like presence within the band, but between him and another guy named Leslie West, like West and, and Papillardi, like those two guys, I think were sort of the, the soul of, of that band, uh-huh. but you can tell that there was a, there was sort of a back and forth, like that there was some, uh, some, some serious songwriting that, that was able to sort of come through on those albums. Sweet. That's it. Hey, we never did. <laughs> we never did give
0: folks an update about the Clutch show, and oh, yeah. and so briefly, Clutch was awesome.
3: Yeah, we saw some. We saw some stuff.
0: Uh, the Sword was rather lackluster.
3: They they were by the numbers, right? Like yeah. that's the report there. Like they they played great, but at the same time, it seemed like they they were just going through the motions. And Lucero
0: really surprised me.
3: They they can wail. Yeah. For for being old old dudes up there on the stage, I mean, Clutch at this point, like Neil Fallon, like they're they're not young. No, that's true. <laughs> None yeah. of them are. Uh,
1: they all kind of look like dads these days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's no, true. There's no problem with that. They still rock. Uh, <laughs> uh, we
0: tried really hard to get Son of Odin from the Sons of Metal podcast to join us at the show, but uh, he he stayed strong and declined.
1: <laughs> oh, lame. You hear me son of Odin? Lame
0: (laughs) The pronouncement has been made Okay That is four things that we Offer to you for your Pleasure should you choose to delve into them We call it One One thing
2: One thing has been brought to you By
0: Alamo Draft House House, (laughs) Where you can go Enjoy a movie without having to deal With annoying people
2: Do you hate people but like
0: movies? You'll love us,
2: Alamo Draft House. Send me a pin.
0: You'll have to open your Alamo Draft House in Lexington, man. That would uh, we would all frequent it.
2: I can
1: split the the difference and just open it in Southern Ohio.
3: There you go. So we talked about like the pure cinema experience, like Korean War movies, mountain, Uh, (laughs) Mountain. (laughs) rock rock and roll, and Superman. Yes, that's badass. That's That's (laughs) badass. All right.
0: Let's get down to business. To, down to brass tacks. As they say. We've come together tonight to talk about this film from nineteen seventy five that I had never seen or actually heard of. Uh had had you guys outside of Goro? Negative. Nope. And so we had actually suggested watching a different boxing film, right? Yeah, John? I
1: believe uh what was the one that you that uh, you repped? Um I don't remember what it was.
0: I don't either. That's why I was setting it up for somebody else.
1: <laughs> the it only was the real only Steel thing I, the, <laughs> yeah, did. there you go, <laughs>
0: Robot Jocks. Robot Jocks. Um, that's
1: when you. That's when you start going into your uh, Richard Matheson phase,
0: <laughs> right? Uh, I none, he
1: wrote that episode. Anyway, really? Well, th- th- there was a Twilight Zone episode that was basically Real Steel.
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, it was about robot boxers. Dude,
0: that's awesome! From the original Twilight. Uh, twi-
1: It was either a Twilight Zone or an Outer Limits. Um, Go go ask the guys who do the Strange Highways podcast. They'll know.
0: Okay, cool. We'll have to check that out. But this is not actually a a, a robot boxing movie. This is a boxing movie from 1975 called Hard Times, starring Charles Bronson and James Coburn, among others, and uh, written and directed by Walter Hill. And El Goro actually uh, called an Audible and switched our direction from the other film, which none of us can actually remember the name of. Um,
2: was it Requiem for a Heavyweight? Yes, it was I Requiem. Think it was yes,
0: yeah. yes, it was Requiem for a Heavyweight. Um, but nonetheless, we watched Hard Times instead. So, Goro, you suggested this film. What is it about this film that made you want to discuss it? Uh, that that made you want to suggest to us to swap it uh, swap out our other film for this
1: well it's a combination of things. One is the thing that you just all spoke of, the fact that this is a relatively underseen film. And much like you for the for years and years I'd never even heard of this movie despite being a Charles Bronson fan. It was my uncle who pointed out to me once I was talking to him about Charles Bronson. And he says, "Well, you need to see this movie where he's a bare-knuckle boxer." And it took me a while to eventually track it down, saw it and absolutely loved it. So hard times has kind of been this film that I just rep as often as possible, because not enough people have seen it. A lot of people have seen the films that Walter Hill would go on to make. But hard times just kind of you know slip through the cracks as some films do. The other thing that I really think makes it appropriate in a podcast about Robert E. Howard is just the general setting and tone of this film. Yeah. With this film being set in the Great Depression, while it's not, me- uh, it's wasn't made in the period of Howard's life, you could certainly see it's a, a b- uh, being in the same world that Howard was interacting with. And while Louisiana isn't quite Texas, it's it's close enough.
3: You <laughs> know, that. yeah. <laughs> it's it's not well it's it is you know upon like the first couple minutes of me of me watching the movie i thought oh man this is great this is like one of those those 70s southern movies and i just love the feel and the way that the the south was portrayed at that point in time in movies and you know louisiana is a different kind of south than oh yeah a lot of other areas but it in you know it is like East Texas and Louisiana are, they're not one and the same, but they're right next door. Right. And it's, it's very much, uh, Howardian in the presentation of, of a lot of the, a lot of the rural aspects of, of the movie. And, and I think that it probably is, is a fair, fun representation of at least like, like that time and place that he was, that he was in. Right.
1: Exactly. And then just the presentation of a character like uh, Chaney, the character that Charles Bronson played. If that's not a Howard protagonist, (laughs) I don't know what is.
0: Yeah. Chaney definitely has some elements of Howard's boxers minus the humor.
1: Yes, he is. He is very, very stoic in this film. But he's, then again, we had the humor provided by James Coburn. Exactly. Yeah. I
3: almost wish he didn't have a name so he could be like the boxer with no name the way he just sort of blows into town and is around. Like, yeah, you know, you just he's he's very Eastwood and very Western, right?
0: Yeah, that struck me while I was watching this as well. Like he he just kind of, you know. Meanders into town. He's he's looking for some fights. He's looking for some change, and uh, just as suddenly as he came into town, he's he's on his way out.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was a deliberate thing on Walter Hill's part. Yeah. Much like John Carpenter, Walter Hill has often said that the films he makes are essentially Westerns.
3: Yeah, And I while saw-
1: this is lacking some of the traditional Western tropes, the setup of this film and the presentation of Cheney and so many other things with it are quintessentially Western. Of course, the connection is made even stronger by virtue of the fact that both Charles Bronson and James Coburn starred in one of my favorite Westerns of all time, uh, Magnificent Seven.
3: Yeah it's i mean archetypes just go so far within like the western genre right like that's even though this isn't outright like a western the way it plays out you know these characters and you know what they stand for there's white hats there's black hats there's there's gray hats i think in this movie Mm -hmm. like (laughs) but you know who (laughs) these dudes are and it's just it's it's powerful right I, i i love it
0: yeah yeah definitely
3: so so we have uh bronson he rolls in he's riding the rails right and you get you get a pretty strong sense of place with a dude riding on a box car and he's passing some some car he passes a car specifically that has a couple kids in it and everybody seems to be pretty pretty down on their luck and you've got a pretty cool like hill country blues uh meandering song that lets you know what you're watching and and soon enough we get into sort of an urban environment uh which you know the the boxcar comes in so you've got the, the train uh the train coming into town and and we sort of jump into the story. One thing that I really liked about this <laughs> this movie and I think it's I think it's kinda nerdy, but well I don't know if it's nerdy. It's just it's just a thing that I think is weird that I appreciate though. I like diner culture. I like the I like diners and I like <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea like- whether it's like pulp fiction or a movie like this. Like things happen just sitting at a table in a diner, and you get bits of story like within the within this sort of like community mm-hmm. center. I think that's a cool trope or something that comes up within movies.
1: And it seems to be quintessentially Americana. I mean, there's plenty of places all around the world where you can get a bite to eat and so, you know have coffee, cafes, and things like that. Right. But the image of the diner, specifically the diner where you just say the word and immediately evokes these images usually of a very tired waitress serving out coffee and kind yeah. of people that are similarly somewhat beat, beaten down by life but there's just something just so quintessentially american about the setting of the diner
3: yeah it's it's funny that you use that term cafe el Goro, because like like growing up my my grandfather grew up in like northern alabama in the in like the 30s and the 40s and and he's still around and he he whenever I grew up and when I was in high school, we talked about going to the cafe. He always talked about going to the to the you know to the diner as the cafe and it's just a term he used and I never really like appreciated like European and, and like French cafes like I always associated that term with like going to the the diner like getting a cup of coffee there in like go. western Arkansas growing <laughs> up and it was very much like uh haggard you know waitresses like just breaking their backs and serving you up yeah and it's it's just it is very much that well i mean i think we covered it a little bit in rocky like that's the that's the every man that's the every woman mm-hmm. presented there and there's there's hope and aspiration in america wrapped up within that but man that's a that's a hard life that's hard times
0: that's hard times
3: <laughs>
1: And that's the other thing I really enjoy about this beyond those simple aesthetics is the setting, the fact that it's set in the Great Depression. And it feels timely at the time that it was released, seeing as the 70s was a period of economic recession. But what we find in so many of these depression stories are just working uh, blue collar people that still find a way to have meaning in their lives despite Mm -hmm. the fact that their security has been taken away. That even if the world is trying to beat them down, there's always going to be people still swinging. I mean, that's the Steinbeck in it, you know, the Grapes of Wrath stuff. In this case, we get it it played out in a more mythical sense in the form of Cheney. But that's still a message that still kind of resonates. It's the idea that even if the American dream has been, quote unquote, taken away, there's still going to be that American spirit that keeps some people swinging. Yeah.
0: And it seems to me that Chaney wouldn't have it any other way, right? Like, he kind of likes it like this.
1: Well, I mean, if he likes it or not, I mean, I think at one point when he was talking to Jill Ireland's character, where he's saying that, you know, I fight, but it's just something I do for now, you know, and his his entire philosophy about it is that I knock people down. Well, how does it feel? A hell of a lot better than getting knocked down myself. (laughs) Exactly.
3: I like the... uh... You know, like in the, at this point, Bronson—he's not a young pup. Like he's, oh, he
1: was in his fifties when he did this. Yeah, thing. and yeah. so
3: and so, you know, it's it's something he's doing for now. Like he's a dude that's been doing this for a long time, and the way he's presented, he's almost ageless, right? Like he's this—he mm-hmm. the—he's the the man with no name. He blows into town, he does his thing, and then he teaches some life lessons, and pff, he's out, right? <laughs> but it's it's cool that it's it's. I mean, that's that's part of the. The, the story of like a hard times kind of American, like up by your bootstraps kind of story, right? Like you're only doing this for now, even though you're in your 50s. It's kind of <laughs> – it's something you're perpetually sort of working to get out of. I don't know. I think there's I think there's something to mind there with that like uh, being in the trenches. And you're always going to be in the trenches, but you're always sort of looking towards something a little bit better.
1: And, the, and that's one of the things that I've always loved about Bronson. I mean the, you – at no point, I don't think anybody would say that he was a great actor. I mean, he's had some great performances, but it's usually been in films where filmmakers have played to his strengths. Yeah, But the, there is an undeniable presence around Charles Bronson, even in the worst films that he's done. And it's a presence that feels earned. I mean, if you dig into his biography, this he was the the son of lithuanian immigrants living in pennsylvania coal country you know he served in in world war ii i believe this guy was had mileage on him before he even got in front of the camera and started acting and he carried that mileage with him throughout his entire career i mean even to the point when he was doing high-end japanese cologne commercials he was still charles (laughs) bronson
0: I've never seen any of those commercials. We're oh,
1: you need to go on YouTube and okay. just look up Charles Bronson Mandon.
0: Okay, <laughs> it's it's glorious, <laughs> fantastic. We'll we'll be sure to post that in the uh, the blog post that accompanies this episode. So, John, what happens when uh,
2: Bronson rolls into town, or Cheney, I should say? He he stumbles upon a bare knuckle boxing match
3: after he tips his waitress. Yeah, hey, he does than, tip the waitress rather than getting that extra cup of coffee and stiffener.
2: That's right. In this first.
0: Boxing match. We get uh, a sense of the type of conflict that we're going to deal with in this film. We meet uh, our one of our other main characters, uh, Speed, uh, portrayed by. Why is the name escaping me? James, James Coburn, F. Yeah. F. and
1: Coburn, James F. and Coburn, <laughs> he of the large mouth and the mini teeth.
3: Uh, <laughs> he's such a he's such a like caricature, right? Yeah, you know,
0: yeah. I, I kept thinking that if uh, if they had done a live action. The Grinch who stole Christmas in the seventies. Uh huh. He could easily have portrayed the Grinch, just oh, with the, totally. those that big smile and the, those those teeth like that. Yeah, I can I can see it. But uh, uh, we meet Speed. He's a fast talker. He's he's a he's a huckster. He's got a guy who's going to be in a bare knuckle boxing match. They're talking trash, and his guy does not make it. And you get the sense that his guys typically don't really make <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right. And I thought this was a, a cool, uh, maybe not an inversion, but Luke, a couple of episodes back, you talked about the relationship between the boxer and the manager. And uh, this movie, more, maybe more than the others that we've watched so far, really takes that relationship and makes it a core element of the film.
3: And I think it's interesting, like the managers, the way that they've been presented in a lot of the stories that we're reading so far they don't hold up their end, right? Like the boxer is presented as the more admirable, the more, uh, uh, the, the, hero of the story, it seems like, or, or at least just like the, the protagonist that you can get behind. Like, and so, so Speedy here, he's, he's a fun dude and you understand him and he's still one of the good guys. But at the same time, man, he's got some vices and he just can't, he can't help, but like shoot himself in the foot. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's cool that the, you know he, the manager is supposed to be the guy that's looking out for his fighter but the way that we've seen these stories presented the whole way i mean correct me if i'm wrong but the way that the way that we've seen them so far like they just don't they don't deliver it's up to the fighter to recognize it and still like figure it out work it out and sort of make the best of the bad situation
1: and it makes sense that that sort of dynamic would come out because, you know, if you look at the traditional d- dynamic between the boxer and the manager, the boxer and the trainer, the boxer is personifying strength, body, b- body, um, bodily might, those sorts of things, whereas the manager is meant to be the thinker. And mm-hmm. while in so- certain stories, their dynamic can become complementary, you know, you can look to Rocky to seeing one of the better examples of a, a good relationship between fighter and and manager or trainer it also opens up that idea that if the if the thinker is going to be exploiting the the body that he is going to be manipulating him into these things and can get away with it so you can see how that dynamic could flow either direction dependent upon well the sensibilities of the writer
3: and it's you know you brought up rocky there and we talked about that previously it's you know the i think one of the cool things about rocky is that you have both uh, the 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 brother-in-law, and then also, you know, uh, his his trainer. Like like, there's 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 suitable direction and support, and then there's also like selfish acts that are playing out within the story. And it's almost like in that case, you get a couple different presentations of how the the support to the fighter can be portrayed, and. I don't know. I mean, I think I think that, that that that's why Rocky is really powerful is because there's a couple different presentations about the people that are helping that fighter out along the path. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and and you know, not to labor on Rocky too much. I think what what pres- makes Mick the sympathetic character or makes him sympathetic to Rocky is the fact that he used to be a boxer himself. He knows what it is like to literally put your life on the line or your body on the line in order to make money. And that's one of the core dynamics that keeps arising when you lo- start looking at so many boxing stories or any sort of blood sport type type stories that when you have a character who is willing to put his well-being on the line in order to make money and then you have somebody that's also – profiting off of that pain and that blood, but is not personally putting their life on the line, it can lend itself towards a sort of manipulative relationship.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we we've seen now, I I guess, three different types of presentation of the the manager boxer relationship Rocky, which we've been talking about uh, the setup last week where the the managers had set up their guy to take a fall um, and then took for granted that he would do so. Um, and now Speed, who uh, you know he he's looking out for himself, and and Cheney is his meal ticket. Is and that how
3: it strikes you guys? Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, also to throw back to to Brothers Keeper, like oh that, sure, that, yeah, the Hammett story too. I think has a very close association too, like with this story that that while you can appreciate the standing of the older brother. And while Coburn is the the coolest like snake oil salesman that you're getting in this story, like, you know, that he has, you know, his interest in Bronson's interest at heart only as far as it, it gets him further down the road he can start, you know, making dollar bills fly when he's like playing craps or whatever. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but what they do is, uh, Chaney introduces himself and he's like, I want you to set up a fight for me. And Speed says, well, okay, I guess I will. And Bronson Cheney he bets all $6 that he has in his pocket <sighs> on himself. And I think he knocks the guy out one punch, right? Yeah. One punch. One punch. Even though he gets called an old man right beforehand. <laughs> yep. So Answer. Speed's all about Cheney now. He's going to take him to New Orleans and they're going to become best friends. And it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs>
3: So the the story plays out uh, with with a series of fights. We're introduced to a handful of ancillary characters. There's a couple of love interests that are introduced in a couple of different ways, and I think they're interesting to to talk about. Uh, so so Bronson's uh, love interest. That's actually his one of his maybe it's right like one of his wives in real life. Is that right? Is that right? I yep. was okay. Okay. Yeah,
1: Jill Ireland. Uh, they were married until 1990 when she died. Okay, really? okay. So they were married a good long time. They got married in '68, so they would have been seven years into their marriage by wow. the time this movie wow. came
3: around. Cool. And and between Speedy and 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 Bronson, uh, Cheney. That's right, right. right. <laughs> and, and Cheney's character, we're getting respective. Uh, uh, partners introduced, and then we we also get the introduction to the Cutman, right?
1: Yeah, Poe. Who? Oh, Poe, Strother Martin.
0: Poe actually was one of my favorite parts of this film. Um, I love it. Yeah. The, there's a scene where he's uh trying to uh spit game to a girl in a bar, and he he says, you know, I'm related to Edgar Allan Poe, and then starts re- reciting Poe poetry to her. Uh huh. I thought that was
3: awesome. <laughs> So See, I,
1: and I I, okay. I love Strother Martin ever since I saw him in Cool Hand Luke. So it's anything he pops up in I love it.
3: So that's what I recognized him from, but I'll be honest, I didn't know him from from anything else, but he I mean he epitomizes the, you know, uh the 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 boss within Cool Hand Luke. He's just he's the royalest son of a bitch ever. Uh but he was he a, a character actor throughout the 70s and the the late 60s, Elgoro. Oh
1: it- Oh, even earlier than that. I mean, okay. his his filmography goes back into the fifties. But okay. yeah, he always just kind of embodied that memorable character actor role. I don't think he ever had a leaning role to his name, but he was always a presence when he popped up. He's like, hey, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. And one of the one of the cool things in this one is that there is a callback to a previous film that he was in, which was '69's uh, The Wild Bunch for, with Sam Peckinpah. Okay. Which uh, there was at the, if you recall, the climax of of Wild Bunch. There's that great line that Burgess Meredith throws out of, not Burgess Meredith. Who am I thinking of? Ah, uh, God, why can't I think of his name? Ernest Borgnine. Okay, we're right before they go to it, and he says, uh, you know, well, let's go, and it's just this that great okay. little, uh, moment. and Strother Martin says the exact same line in. Um, Hard times okay. right before the the big fight kicks off. Whether that was a deliberate callback. It's questionable, but Walter Hill was a huge movie fan and a huge Western fan in particular. So I have a feeling that was a deliberate nod to uh, Wild Bunch.
3: Man, that's that's awesome. I'm, I'm pulling up his Wikipedia right now, and it lists a partial filmography, but there's a butt-ton of Westerns here. I mean, he's in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and McClintock and oh, Sons McClintock. of Katie Elder and True Grit. I mean, and, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. There's a bunch of stuff here, and I can't necessarily place him beyond – Cool hand Luke. But, yeah. I mean, he's just, I don't know. He's, got, he <laughs> portrays
0: those characters so well, you know, like he kind of disappears into the role, I suppose. Um, I also loved when he threw the hammer through the window. He said, No, I'll get him and just tosses the hammer <laughs>
3: through the window. He's like, We ain't got all night.
0: Right. It's <laughs> awesome.
3: A, he's a straight up hophead. I love it. Yes. <laughs> I like, I like that as the, uh, as, as a character as a, as a supporting role too. Like that, that's another great trope. Like you can think of like, I don't know why I'm thinking about it. (laughs) I don't know. This is weird, but like in the movie, uh, Oh shit. Like a few good men. Uh, who is the, uh, the, the, the sort of, uh, portly gentleman. That's the, the helper to Tom Cruise. Uh, Oh,
1: um, I don't remember. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it up.
3: I'm sorry, I'm derailing us. No, no, Shit. no. That's the. It's all that's right. like, this is gold. That's the the stereotype here. This is uh, Kevin. Well, Kevin Pollock does it, but I'm thinking of somebody else. Like like those those kinds of guys that are the 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 fallible. Like they've got a lot of uh, they've got a lot of problems of their own, but they're dependable for the role that they're playing. I Man. love I love that character. I love the. You know the. <laughs> this is horrible to say. I love the functioning alcoholic within, within a story, or or like the functioning hophead. Yeah. Like that, they are damaged and damned in some fashion, but they're still going to pull through and do what they need to do within the story. And they're the lovable losers too, right? Like yeah. that's the way that they come off.
0: But Poe's a cut man, and he never even had to uh, stitch him stitch up uh, Cheney.
1: Nope. Great gig, yeah. It's a good job. (laughs) Well, and it really just helps round out this entire cast of characters because if you look at everybody in this movie, everybody is in some way a misfit, is in some way corrupt. You don't really see any quote unquote upstanding citizens in this in this world. Because the world they're existing in is the seedy underbelly. So if you're going to have a doctor that's operating in this world, he's going to be a hophead. He's going to have a vice behind him. Right. And I love just how unapologetic he is about it. That he doesn't. He doesn't uh, try to hide it. He doesn't do it. He's he's he is comfortable with who he is. Yeah. It's like a Tom Waits song. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's that's a good good point.
3: Oliver Platt is the Oliver the, Platt. The, the, the okay, po- yeah, the fellow that I'm thinking of in a variety of roles. He always plays like the he's the he's yeah. like the happy-go-lucky. All I can of- think of
0: right now is Lake Placid, and I think he is okay. an alcoholic in that movie as well.
4: <laughs> he oh, in, in,
3: in the Ice Harvest he plays just like the the drunk guy that 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 ended up marrying you know the ex of the protagonist, uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, "You tricked me! Why did I do this?" <laughs> it's great. <laughs>
0: Uh <laughs> Okay, back on back on track. Hard we, times. W- hard times. We've we've got uh our cast of characters all um fleshed out here and now let's talk about the uh antagonists. So, uh I can't think of the character's name, the uh the manager, the opposing manager that um is basically there. Oh, Gandalf, I think. Gandalf, yeah. Yeah. Um Gandalf has a fighter who is, I think the complete uh, flip side of the coin to Chaney. Um, He really likes to inflict pain. He takes great pleasure in it. He thinks a lot of himself. He's not humble whatsoever. Um, And I I liked this, this uh, sort of dichotomy we have here between these two different fighters as they sort of uh, through the track, through the course of the movie, eventually, uh you know set course toward one another and and meet
1: yeah no I, I, speaking of great character actors or guys who just have a great look to him uh Gandalf's a, initial fighter the bald one robert tessier He's just got this sinister little look to him and it's it's the same kind of vibe that he had in the original longest yard and he's just a great little uh kind of mid-level boss yep. for this film
0: yeah and that's exactly who i was talking about so uh there's a scene where we get to see uh, his character, Jim Henry, I think uh, just sort of mop the floor with uh, another fighter. The the other guy doesn't lay a finger on him or if he does slug him, it doesn't do much damage. And uh, we then see this sort of brutal nature of, of this character as opposed to Chaney, who is brutal in his own right, but doesn't seem to take any kind of perverse joy in the, the, uh, pain that he dishes out
3: so so john how would you characterize the way that that cheney's portrayed here i mean he's he's not a strong man necessarily right or what's the what's the right word like an iron man oh like yeah it, it seems like more he would fit into uh the pantherly panther type that we've seen portrayed yeah. otherwise
0: yeah you mean in terms of boxing styles yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I guess he's a puncher. He's a puncher boxer.
3: He's more surgical, <laughs> right? Like the, he's he hits where he needs to and he
2: knocks dudes out. Yeah, one punch, he's a yeah. KO artist, knockout artist.
1: Exactly. He's there just a tough guy. Yeah. You know, he he knows exactly where to hit people to make sure they get knocked down.
3: Because there's a there's a scene where we see Tessier or, or the way that that character, Jim Henry, like they're on a boat, right? Like there's 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 some fighting going in exactly. there. Like he's almost he's Costigan esque in the way he's portrayed. I mean he's he's more uh he's more bloodthirsty, right? He's not he's not an affable, laughable kind of guy. Right. Uh but he's he's has that sort of presentation. It struck me.
0: Yeah. He's smiling while you're throwing your best punches and, and you feel like you're scoring a good hit and, and he's just standing there laughing at you.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, his entire uh, fighting style is to absorb most of the, the punches with his head. (laughs) Right. Because it's hard just so he can break the guy's knuckles and then take him out at his leisure.
0: And so that makes me want to ask you guys, what did you think of the fights in the film as they're presented? Mm
1: -hmm. Brutal. I mean, it's just,
2: bare knuckle boxing.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, s- some of it can look a little bit dated, you know, when you see the, um Bronson throwing these kind of wild haymakers in rapid succession, they look a bit weird, especially if you've watched boxing or any or you are conditioned to more modern styles of fight choreography. But what I think Walter Hill does to great effect is that most of the time when the fights are happening, there is no music playing, diegetic or otherwise, that he just lets the soundtrack be the sound of fists on flesh. Mm-hmm. And it gets even more pronounced in the final fight where there's not even the roar of the crowd to offset it. It's just two guys breathing and punching each other. And it's, it, to me, it creates some very powerful fight scenes.
3: Yeah, I like the way it seems, you know, I wasn't paying strict attention to it because I guess it's the the function of the way that, you know, music works within the film. But it was segues in between major portions of the movie and in between scenes you would get bits of that. But when there was a lot of action taking place on the screen, there wasn't necessarily a soundtrack going on in the background there. And it it lends to the, the, the whole atmosphere.
0: Yeah.
1: That said, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been opposed if they had kept that uh, Cajun Zydeco music going during when he was fighting that Cajun. Guy. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, that would have yeah. been
0: pretty cool. <laughs> um. Yeah, that whole scene where they visit Pettibone's, uh, you know, crawfish boil out on the bayou was was pretty cool. That's um, pretty
3: Howardian, man. That's, yeah. that's pigeons from hell right there. That's like uh, right. East East Texas, like like in the in the sandy hills with pine trees and swampy nether regions you wouldn't want to get into (laughs)
1: well and here's a brief aside for you guys since you uh, evoked the uh reoccurring line of the pantherly panther (laughs) description (laughs) (laughs) what would you have thought if at um if charles bronson had played conan because at one point, he was actually close to getting cast, because Dino De Laurentiis came on the project, he had done a lot of work with Bronson in the past, he, and for many indications, he was really pushing for Bronson to play Conan, because Bronson had a huge overseas following.
3: I could see it, I would I would like it. I mean, just overall, like Bronson has a very... Like... Like a... Uh, 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 I mean, we talked about Coburn maybe being a little bit of a character, but Bronson himself, like you could, if you were going to make a quick cartoon of a caveman, and then you were to take like a picture of of Bronson's face and put him side by side, you would have sort of that overall appearance. And so I think at a base sort of like primitive level, he could pull off the overall appearance of, of, of Conan the way that people think about that character like almost as a tie to to uh sort of the the primitive era of man but at the same time like the way that you see bronson presenting almost the the thinker you know in terms of like like once upon a time in the west and in this movie he's a guy that's clearly figured things out and he's working the angles and he knows what's going on and you can see it in his eyes that's very conan-esque i could see that i could see a sound delivery of, of of bronson doing like King Conan and and the the elder Conan that that knows that's working that's working the angles.
0: He's been around, he's seen some things, he's been through the fights and and yeah, he's he's got that weary sort of uh look about him and he's got that poise that you were describing that I think matches up with what the Howard stories sort of say about Conan as yeah. a character. Mm. John, what do you think?
2: I would be into a Bronson Conan. I've, when I watched him in uh, Death Wish, I kept wanting him to either be Conan or the Punisher. Like, I wish we had a <laughs> 70s or 80s Bronson movie where he was in one of those roles. He was a bit old by the time we were getting the Conan movie, but he probably could have pulled it off still.
1: So. Yeah. And young Bronson definitely could have pulled off. Well, young Conan. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) If you see him, I I, I mean, again, he was in great shape in this movie, but you look back on him throughout the ages, he's always been in great shape.
0: Definitely. It's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more accurate, I think, in terms of what Howard, how Howard described Conan than the, you know, muscle bound Schwarzenegger that, that we get in the film. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think it would have worked really well.
3: Yeah, like like a uh, dirty dozen era yeah. Bronson, he would have been like just just right in there. <laughs> that would have been great.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird to think that when Howard was writing Conan, people who looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger literally did not exist. Right. That th- there was nobody who looked like that. Now, granted, that's because, you know, Arnold did a lot of steroids, but it's <laughs> also just the refinement of uh, training techniques um, and also a great deal of, phys- of uh, well, just DNA that went into it. But it is weird to think because so much of how I've used Conan is informed by Arnold, is informed by Frank Frazetta, by guys like that. Mm-hmm. But when Howard was writing it, those guys really didn't exist. You'd have your circus strongman. But even if you go back and look at those old vintage posters of strongman, which I do because I'm fascinated by them, mm-hmm. you did not see that kind of physique.
0: Yeah, you see you see folks with with big arms, but they're not cut in the same way. And you see guys who maybe even have kind of a gut, right? Like they're they're just big, <laughs> big, beefy dudes. They're like
3: trucker wrestlers, right? Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: I would take a Bronson Conan, I think, is the answer to the question.
3: Yeah.
1: Good answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So back to the film, we've, we've seen a few vignettes with, um, Chaney fighting various folks from, uh, Pettibone's, um, uh, party on the bayou, uh, to, uh, Oh, what's the other fight that we had? The one hit, uh, knockout. Um, and Gandalf at some point, uh, asks, uh, after Chaney, uh, dispatches of, um, what's his name? Jim.
3: Oh, Jim Henry. Yeah. Right? Jim
0: Henry. Yeah. He dispatches of him and Gandal suggests, Hey, maybe, maybe you could come fight for me. Speed's got a lot of debt. I'll take, I'll give you half. I'll take half that'll cover his debts and we'll all be square. And, uh, Chaney doesn't want to fight for him.
3: Yeah. And we get a view after that, I think of, of the way that, the way that Speedy takes a big bankroll, right? Like, like the big, there's a big fight that takes place. Speedy blows money. Like yep. just, just throws it all on the, the table, right? He's playing craps, right? He mm-hmm. just loses it all. And his woman's like, you lost it again.
0: Yeah. These are the winnings from the Jim Henry victory, yeah. right? The the victory over Jim Henry, I should say. <laughs> Uh, which was a cool fight and I think was my favorite in terms of the setting, you know, inside the cage with, with people like on, on the level above it. It just seemed like a, a great big, you know, Vince McMahon promoted spectacle uh, that you would see on on TV in the on wrestling in the 80s or something, you know?
3: It's cool that that happens like after the sort of remote like out in the country fight. Like you kind of get in this movie, you've got a little bit of country and a little bit of like... That, that rock and of roll yeah <laughs> no, <sorry>. <laughs> nice <laughs> but it, it really plays i mean the south is more than just uh rural areas you're more than just out in the woods like there are urban centers throughout the south and sure. it's presented here in that sort of like boxcar way station uh shitty mad max sort of like oil refinery you're in the factory lifestyle that's that you get here too uh it's 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 clear i just like that like the the story does well to represent a lot of different uh settings it's it makes it feel fuller for the for the movie being as short as it does you go on a on a walk about a lot of different areas
1: yeah. And you really get the sense that through those different areas that he is kind of moving his way up the ranks. Yeah. You know, it starts it starts off with this uh, we, uh, abandoned warehouse fight that he just is a pickup fight. Then he gets the, um, C- the Cajun picnic fight because he has to he has to build a larger bankroll. And then finally, he has this huge fight with lots of cheering people all, to, you know, wa- watching him fight, you know, this big guy. And then, interestingly enough, by the time the final fight comes around, the scale just shrinks down again. Mm-hmm. And it, it was an interesting choice for Walter Hill to do that. You know, I've I've talked to some people, and they've they've questioned the, the motivations of Gandal. You know, here's a guy that seems to be a fight promoter. Why wouldn't he uh, put his this big hitter that he pulled in from Chicago against Chaney to make his uh, defeat public and you know reestablish himself as the man with the best hitter? But to do that is to lose some of the motivation of the character, that at this point, his defeat, his conquering of Cheney, is less to do about his reputation, less to do about his standing. It's just so he can uh, know for himself that he has the best.
0: Yeah. And the stakes are are more personal and and indeed greater at this point. Right. Because if Chaney turns down the fight, uh, I guess Gandal has taken speed hostage and he'll uh, kill speed if there's no fight. So we've we've got to have this fight. And since there's a man's life hanging in the balance, it maybe makes a little bit of sense to, I don't know, bring the the spectacle down a notch. I, I don't know.
1: No, I mean, it makes sense for me. It, it makes it all very personal, which is one of the things I enjoy about this, that no matter where this film goes, it is a great it's a great action film. There's some gr- there's some great fight sequences, but it is the relationship between the characters that keeps me coming back to this film and what really, I think, gives this film a lot of heart.
0: Yeah. So we're closing in on the, the final scene, John, uh, where we've we've put all the pieces on the table. Describe the final scene here, the, the final fight. It's a
2: boxing match. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> uh, we Elaborate. Got a guy, <laughs> we've got a guy named Street who is obviously like a big bad man, and he is coming in to take care of business. And the boxing match is more of a slugfest than what we've seen with Chaney before. It's not a one-hit knockout. So they're exchanging some pretty powerful blows. And finally, Chaney gets Street down. And uh, the bad guy Gandalf, not Gandalf, which is what I almost said, <laughs> he, he tries to kick some some knuckle dusters or like brass cylinders or something into the hands of Street so that he can beat up Cheney. even though I assume that automatically means that they forfeit the match. I don't know how many rules are involved in actual street boxing, but the guy refuses them and he finishes the match like a man even though he gets gets walloped and knocked out. And as, as we move out from the fight, you know, uh, Speed has been saved, but Chaney sort of shares his winnings with Poe and, and Speed and then disappears into the night like Batman. And
0: Speed says, that guy sure was something and uh we cut the credits
3: and Poe says let's go get that cat. Yeah, let's go get that cat. <laughs> I, we we
0: neglected to mention that Chaney had adopted a kitty cat at some point in the film and was taking care of it in his apartment.
3: It's a little bit it's a little bit of uh it's a little bit of love right there. Uh-huh. I mean, but but really like like Rocky has his goldfish or his and his, his okay, He butcus. has <laughs> he has his animals. That's like the way that you show like that t- like that, that 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 connection with you know, uh, with a with a good kind heart, right? Yeah, he's vulnerable and too. He, and so Bronson gives just like a fat stack and says, "Hey, take care of my cat." <laughs> yep. I got a jet. <laughs> I gotta ride the rails. I gotta head north. I like that too. He's you know it's like it's like this is like Act One. We get the uh, the Southern story, the 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 Southern drawl here. He's uh-huh. like, "Nope, I'm gonna go on up to Chai Town or something." Yeah. He's like, In hard north. times too, harder yeah. times. <laughs> Night uh, the cold nights of Chicago. (laughs) So
0: what did you guys think of the film? I mean, we've been gushing about it, so I think we know the answer to that question, but, uh, uh, what did you like about it? I guess in addition,
3: I like that. I mentioned this early on when we first started the recording that I like the way that the, the, the sort of Southern flavor comes across. I think that the setting itself is almost a character, the way that you get like a, like a Zydeco uh, like party out in the middle of the bayou. like I, I love that. I love the feel of the the sort of urban decay. and i I really like that these characters are presented in very broad strokes. It's not it's not a it's not a long movie, and you don't have a lot of characters. And so you could have, you know more. Sophisticated presentations of any given character here beyond what's presented, I think you know, with a little bit of effort. But but this is very much a western without the west, right? You're with with the the sort of southern uh, depression era presentation that we're mm-hmm. getting here. There's good guys, there's bad guys, there's a story to be told, there's lessons to be learned, and I I I don't know, I I really like these types of these types of movies where you can you can peel off layers of the onion but you can also just like enjoy just a pretty at its face kind of story and like like strong characters yeah i liked it
1: that's exactly what keeps me coming back as i had mentioned that at at the heart this is very much an american folk folk tale it's big archetypical characters in the backdrop of mundane settings, which I, I enjoy that sort of aspect of it. You know, some, some people would call the characters thinly drawn, but to me, they, they are pers- personifications of archetypes and, and, proper use of those archetypes, you know, Jung spoke, spoke of this. It has power. It resonates with us. It allows us to invest in these because they're just iterations of core characters we've seen throughout myth from the beginning. And, When we have those kind of characters and we have these very strong actors portraying them, I think it really helps uh, just become a timeless film. That there are many films from the 70s that have not aged well, but to me, Hard Times is not amongst them. The only thing that uh, kind of dates it, other than the look of the of the actors, obviously, because there's there's nobody in this movie that you would necessarily call pretty. (laughs)
2: Everybody
1: (laughs) has it looks very distinctive is the, just the fact that it was filmed using an older style and technique that uh, has sadly gone out of fashion. You know, the, the camera work is very stately. The, it's not too fancy because it doesn't need to be. What's going on is lends the film all the weight that it needs. And, yeah, as a vehicle for Bronson, to me, it's one of his best. It's, it was, it's the great truism that if you find an, a director... Then knows how to utilize Bronson, he becomes immortal, and I think Hard Times is one of the best examples of that.
0: Yeah, I can see that for sure. John, do you have any final thoughts about the film?
2: I just like Charles Bronson. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that was one of the reasons I was really excited to watch this movie, just because I there's something about him. The economy of words in which he conveys a lot of emotion is intriguing to me. I've only seen him in a. a maybe a half dozen or a little more movies, but there's something about his eyes. They're just very intriguing. I I like Charles Bronson. Cool. Do you guys think that Robert E. Howard would have liked
0: this film?
1: I think he would have. I think one of the things that would have appealed to Howard is it's uncomplicated, but also resonant depiction of masculinity, which is something that I've always associated with Howard in my own, albeit limited readings of him. And it's masculinity that's presented in a non well to borrow parlance of our own uh days in a non-toxic way that what we have is we have the paragon of of masculine ideals personified by cheney who is humble he keeps his word and he can back up his word with a strong right hook versus you know the lesser forms of men as he's run into the liars the cheats the people that you really want to see him knock down yeah and that's one of the strengths of, uh, of Howard. I mean, we think of one of the first Conan stories where he's uh, writing poetry. What was that? Phoenix and the Sword?
0: Yeah, the first one is Phoenix yeah. on the Sword. And he's writing the, the very first scene that uh, you see Conan. He's writing something down.
1: Yeah. And he says that, you know, um, what do I have of cultured ways, the guilt, the craft, the lie? I don't remember how the rest of it goes. Right. But essentially what we have is we have a man who was born under who seems like he was born into a more primitive time, into a more cultured time, into a the barbarian time that um, that Howard would talk about and he's up against people that rely upon the, the, the craft and the lie. Mm -hmm. So I I think Howard would dig this, would have dig this film. Dug this film, I can't talk.
0: No, that's perfect, man. Yeah. I think you (laughs) nailed it. Uh, certainly speed represents those, uh, civilized tropes, right? Those characteristics that Howard would have found kind of repugnant, right? Greed and, and, uh, um, uh, you know, not being true to his lady friend and and all of those things, uh, not being able to pay his debts. He's a liar. You can't trust him.
1: He, what was but, the quote about civilized people that uh, can only be so because they don't have to worry about somebody sinking an axe into their head?
0: Yep, close enough. Yep, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> close yep, Luke, you were going to say something?
3: Uh, I guess you know. So, speed, like the way that Coburn presents his character, he's still likable, right? Like yeah. he's 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 a sympathetic. Uh, portrayal of of masculinity too, like kind of the kind of the easy way out, right? Like the way that we see that character get uh, Cheney into a pickle, and the way that he continues to get himself into a pickle, he just can't avoid it. You know, that is akin to Howard coping with civilized folk that like they need they need the helping hand too right like so Mm. i don't know i think it's interesting that you can have uh both uh a supporting character that has you know likable aspects and is also someone that has like the the hindrances and the shortcomings that the antagonists also sort of embody but the fact that he just has a slightly you know slightly better heart (laughs) like he's 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 only you know his heart is 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 somewhat impure but he doesn't like totally he's not totally betraying his buddy he just can't help himself i i think that's a great portrayal like like the weakness of spirit right like like you're not gonna see conan nor uh bronson's character in this movie sort of betraying their their ideals or their their sort of overall uh you know integrity pretty old it's school exact. yeah it is old school. It's,
0: it's cool and it, i think this movie says a lot without saying too much and at 90 minutes i mean it doesn't overstay its welcome it's yeah. it it does its thing and then it's out
3: and we've we you you mentioned it, you use the term sort of thinly drawn but but very well crafted archetypes el goro like the the thing that sort of comes to my mind this is a movie and and the way that these uh sort of mythic folklore sort of tales work like like they're they're very simplistic with the the line art but they're they're, they're drawn with a sharpie right like you can just like see this bold stark contrast and everything sort of stands out and you get the the bits and pieces of the characters presented as they should be it just it really works
1: yeah definitely yeah and it's it's the kind of a tone that uh, Walter Hill is explored in a lot of his films. I mean, if you look at the Warriors, it's, again, very archetypical characters. You look at um, even a, even a movie like Streets of Fire, which I covered recently on the show. It's he likes playing with these kind of tropes, and I think he does a good job with them.
0: Yeah, I, I have to admit my uh, Walter Hill, uh, the movies that I've watched that he's directed, are pretty limited and so i'm gonna have to rectify that here pretty quick
3: so el goro yep. have you uh yep. have you covered uh southern comfort on your show
1: i haven't and i actually haven't seen southern comfort yet it's been on my to watch list forever and i will eventually pull the trigger on that because that one just sounds great
3: yeah i i haven't seen that either and it, it, it falls into the whole like 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 70s dirty south kind of kind of mm-hmm. genre i <laughs> i just love the thought of that but it's a movie that i've never watched myself either the one
1: one walter hill film that definitely explores the uh southern landscape to great effect is the film he did in 86 i want to say it was uh, crossroads with ralph macchio okay which is he is he plays a classically trained guitarist who is uh, t- uh, t- uh, going into the south in order to try to find the lost music of robert johnson oh cool. nice and ends up at the end with s- slight spoilers, but he ends up in a duel with the devil, <laughs> playing dueling guitars.
0: That sounds awesome.
1: Well, not not quite the devil. I think it was Steve Vai.
0: <laughs> Close, <laughs> not really. Steve Vai is not the devil.
1: <laughs> no, he, he was working on behalf of the devil.
0: Right, representation. Yeah.
1: It's a it's a it's a great film. It's 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 a hell of a lot of fun.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's another one. I'm going to have to add. I keep every time we talk, I add like ten films to the list that I, I need to watch, and it's My just job is done. It's just never going to end. I'm never going to catch up. <laughs> Any final thoughts, guys, before uh, we put hard times to rest?
1: Just go see it. Um, unfortunately, the DVD copy is not that great. The one that was widely released was uh, full frame. So it is kind of cut off. Oh. And unfortunately, the Blu-ray copies are kind of hard to come by. I lucked into um, getting a hold of a limited edition that was released by a company called Twilight Time. Okay. Where their big thing is they take, they take somewhat obscure films and do very limited releases of them. And I just so happen to luck upon when they just released Hard Time. So I only paid 20 bucks for it. You new, A new copy of that release is going to run you close on to 80 Oh but I wow. believe there is a British all regions Blu-ray that you can import for around thirty to forty.
0: Okay. And yeah. Luke, you watched this on Amazon, right? You I did, it?
3: yeah. So you can get a standard definition for like three bucks on Amazon. So that's how I watched it and it looked great. You was get, it
1: widescreen or was it it a f- was, yeah. Oh, it could. That means that Amazon is sourcing the uh, the restored print instead of that full frame version that was on DVD for a while. I think it is. Okay, you're having (laughs) second thoughts. (laughs) I'm having second thoughts. Amazon. (laughs) I didn't didn't notice that to their credit. So, uh, props
3: to them. I didn't notice any full frame like shenanigans. So, okay,
0: all right. Well, El Goro, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, picking this movie for us to dissect and enjoy. This was really good.
1: It was my my absolute pleasure. I always love talking with you guys and I always love sharing uh, the movies that I think are good and Hard Times is definitely one of them.
0: Uh, Where can people find Talk Without Rhythm and what's coming up on the show?
1: All right. Well, if you want to check me out, uh, it can be found on the website TWORpodcast.blogspot.com or pretty much any place that you uh, find your podcasts. As for what's coming up on the show, I was uh, delayed by a week because I was visiting San Francisco last week. So the next episode I'll be doing is the ending of my month of animation, which I always line up with the month of May to create animation. And this one is going to be looking at two CG animated films from Robert Zemeckis, the film Monster House, and in somewhat keeping with the aesthetics of this show, Beowulf.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah.
1: Yeah, should
0: be fun. Yeah, that will be fun. I really like that Beowulf uh, CGI movie. Uh, I like it a lot. Luke and I actually watched that several years ago, way back in the beginning of our friendship.
3: Dead eyes. Dead eyes. Doll's eyes. (laughs) Like a
1: doll. (laughs) (laughs) That film gets a bad rap, but I I, I will still rep that film. I love it. I mean, it's been years since I've seen it, so I'm curious to see how well it's aged. But... uh, I enjoyed it when I saw it, and I'm looking forward to revisiting it.
0: The, the The scene early on where they're in the mead hall and everyone is shouting "Rothgar, Rothgar," and they're just <laughs> having a, an awesome Viking party. Um, I was I bought into the film immediately.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I think I, I bought into it when we saw him uh, fighting a bunch of sea serpents naked.
0: Yeah, during the swimming race across the North yeah. Sea. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like, okay, this is going to be one of those kind of movies. Let's do this.
0: <laughs> yeah, great. Well, everybody go over to uh, tworpodcast.blogspot.com or search uh, iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, for a Talk Without Rhythm podcast, uh, and you'll get more of the excellent film criticism and discussion uh, that you have had a sampling of tonight. And uh, who am I kidding? You're probably already listening to Talk Without Rhythm, so you don't need us to tell you about it.
1: Uh, Thank you for that.
0: And uh, we will see you uh, hopefully at some point in the
1: future, sir. Always down, guys. Always down.
0: And uh, for everyone else, you can find us on the web at TheCromcast.blogspot.com. You can email us, theCromcast at gmail.com. You can call us at our uh, voicemail line, 859 429 CROM. And we're on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at The theCromcast. And we will see you a little bit further on down the road of champions. Of champions. champions.
4: Let us pause in life's pleasures. And count its many tears while we all sub sorrow with the poor. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh hard times come again no more. It's a song, a sigh of the weary. Hard times, hard times, come again no more. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard times, come again no more. While we seek mirth and beauty and music light and gay, there are frail forms. Leaning at the door Though their voices now are silent Their pleading looks still say Oh, hard times come again no more It's a song, a sigh of the weary Hard times, hard times come again no more Many days you have lingered Around my cabin door Oh, hard times come again no more There's a pale drooping maiden Who toils her life away With a warm heart whose better days are o'er Though her voice should be merry It's singing all the day Oh, hard times come again no more It's a song, a sigh of the weary Hard times, hard times come again no more Many days you have lingered Around my cabin door Oh, hard times Come again no more It's a sigh That has wafted Across the troubled wave It's a wail That is heard upon the shore It's a dirge That is murmured Around the lowly grave Oh, hard times Come again no more It's a song A sigh of the weary Hard times, hard times Come again no more Many days you have lingered Around my cabin door Oh, hard times Come again no more. Oh, hard times come again no more.
3: Have you ever watched Deliverance?